Welcome to the Between You and Me podcast. This is episode two. All right. So today, I think we have sort of two things to talk about. Um, the polls that we got had um, two things with equal votes. So uh, we're going to talk about the philosophy of art. And then, Colin, what are you going to talk about a little bit? And I'm going to be talking about attachment styles and the theory behind attachment. Awesome. So. I do think we should take a moment to thank everybody for their votes and for contributing because we got a lot of feedback and it's really awesome to see that engagement. Yeah, definitely. So we had a lot of responses to both our Instagram polls and our, um, Google form poll. So if you voted, thank you so much. It helps us a lot. (laughs) Um, We definitely could not choose a topic without you. We've both done our own research about these topics, or we've taken our own notes, and I haven't seen what you've written, and you haven't seen what I've written. Nope. (laughs) So this podcast is about teaching the listener as much as it is about teaching each other and so we're coming at this from different perspectives with different findings and we're just going to gather back and use this as an opportunity to share what we've learned in the hopes of sharing that information with uh, more people definitely um do you want to start with attachment styles yeah, I can I can start. Sure. So, I'll be fully honest, I am a little biased towards this because I'm just fascinated by uh, the theory of attachment. Attachment theory has a couple different levels to it, and it starts out as a theory proposed by John Bowlby in the 50s in the field of developmental psychology revolving around how children connect with their parents okay, and the different ways that they can form those relationships and how that affects their personality later in life or their tendencies. And his, uh, John Bowlby's theories were very cut and dry. It was very all or nothing. Um, but it, his work was further developed by Mary Ainsworth in 1970, or in the 1970s, which broke down attachment into four distinct styles, okay. which described how children reacted to their parents and to strangers. And this study was the stranger separation study that was basically you'd have a child in the room with their parents and see how they interact and then they'd have the parents leave the room and see how the child reacted i definitely watched a study about this in my ap psych class in high school it's yeah it it comes from developmental psychology so you've probably heard of this level of it there was some further research that took the theories and findings from early childhood development and made some really compelling connections towards how that affects adulthood because they've really found that these tendencies stick with us Mm -hmm. for a lot longer 
than we originally uh, thought. So during Mary Ainsworth's study, she classified children as secure, avoidant, resistant, or disorganized. If we just take a second to break down those categories, the first one being secure is these are children who are unhappy when their parents leave the room, but are happy to see them when they return, and their parents serve as this safe home base that gives them the confidence to like explore their surroundings okay. without fear. Um, and this is like this is that healthy connection where they, the parent and children, engage in like mutual respect and interest right so the child gets everything that they need and it's the quote-unquote healthy relationship um the next one is avoidant where the parent doesn't serve as that safe home base and parents and strangers are viewed with the same sort of indifference where the child's not responsive to um, either their parents or the stranger mm-hmm. which um, is connected to uh, parents who are inattentive right. so the child can't rely on them Yep. and as a result they're no more caring than a stranger would be the next is resistant which has also been described as anxious um, and this is characterized by clingy children Um, but they reject their parents' approaches towards them. Okay. And this is the mark of inconsistent parenting, which kind of leads to this distraught worry about abandonment and then this anger when that abandonment is realized. Right. And the last one is disorganized, which during the study acted erratically and ran around the room and froze and this is really a telltale sign of abuse okay yep so all of this was published in the 1970s and characterized how children interacted with their parents but later on um there were some researchers who expanded upon that research and looked at how childhood experiences influence adult relationships. Okay. So the theory was that the way you connected with your parents will influence how you connect with others. And so I'm actually reading um, this book called Attached by Amir Levine and Rachel Heller um, which summarizes their findings after a 2010 study okay so from there um you get the i hesitate to call it modern attachment theory but we'll call it um romantic attachment theory (laughs) as differentiated from the early childhood development this is also broken down into four categories that are somewhat related to the four studies the four categories we looked at earlier so the four attachment styles are secure anxious preoccupied dismissive avoidant and fearful avoidant got it and these are there's a great um 
infographic that I just think summarizes everything so well, but I have to hunt for it every time. <laughs> it feels like the torn pieces of a treasure map that you have to track down. I've never been able to find them all <laughs> in one place. It's all a matter of trying to find the individual pieces yep. and taping them back together. But it's this great um, diagram that shows the four quadrants of attachment. And in one you have secure, which is characterized as confident, reciprocal, non-reactive, and resilient. Opposite to that, you have anxious, preoccupied, which is characterized by emotional hunger, fantasy of bond, lack of nurturing, and turbulence. Mm -hmm. On the bottom half, you have dismissive avoidant, which is characterized by isolation, ambiguity, ambivalence and emotional distance and on the other corner you have fearful avoidant which is characterized by internal conflict dramatic unpredictable and ambivalence cool. so these are an overview and again i wish i could share this um um infographic because it breaks down those characteristics into different um, examples that are more um, relatable, I think, right. and more understandable. So maybe I'll just look at one of them to give an example. Sure. And I would highly encourage everyone to look up um, attachment styles. And there's some great infographics that you can find pretty readily to... Um, read in more detail but I'll just start with dismissive avoidant under isolation it says to have a tendency to emotionally distance themselves from their partner and has very few close relationships ambivalence they're able to turn off their feelings and not react even during conflict ambiguity if at any point their partner threatens to leave them they have the ability to shut down their emotions and pretend that they don't care Emotionally distant, self-sufficient, independent, and can avoid true intimacy to avoid showing vulnerability. So, these are how, or these describe how someone may show tendencies in an adult relationship stemming from a um, avoidant connection with their parents. So, if they're if you remember back to the early childhood development that avoidant children were not um, their parents were not attentive to their needs and so they don't see their parents as a safe home base they're as caring as a stranger and there's this sort of the child can't rely on them right and you can see that mirrored in um adult individuals who they don't see their partner as someone that they can feel safe around and trust because they couldn't rely on their parents they feel that they can't rely on their partner right and they're able to shut down those feelings as to avoid showing vulnerable vulnerability or getting hurt and there's, again, there's four of these overarching 
categories that have those in-depth descriptions of each one. Um, and it's very interesting to read how these different attachment styles connect with each other because obviously um, human beings are very dynamic. You know, mm -hmm. we don't fit cleanly into boxes. Right. You know, we never, f you know, fit all the check marks. But most people, after looking at this infographic, can um, find something that they relate to a little bit, even. And that it's not that there's anything wrong with that, you know? Mm -hmm. I think understanding attachment theory helps you understand yourself a little bit more. Yeah. And I think that's where the benefits to be had, where you can recognize your tendencies and mm -hmm. decide for yourself if this is something that you're you want to be mindful of right or something that you know because i believe the goal is always to work towards more secure attachment right there has been studies done that you can shift your attachment mm -hmm. you can being mindful of your current tendencies you can practice these exercises and say, oh, I'm being avoidant right now. Right. And maybe I need to, if I can recognize that, maybe I can open up for a minute mm -hmm. and be a little vulnerable and do the things to encourage healthy relationships. Right. Interesting. And one of the most famous examples of this interplay between attachment styles is known as the anxious avoidant dance and this describes the tendency for uh, dismissive avoidant and anxious preoccupied individuals to be couples oh interesting in theory they are the absolute worst pairing for each other and they are the most popular like connection that's interesting and um, it's, if you read about the anxious avoidant dance or the anxious avoidant trap, uh, you might be like me and be reading and say, oh no, oh no, <laughs> <laughs> I've done this a couple times. Um, but the anxious avoidant trap works off the principle that avoidant um, partners are kind of pushed away by that feeling of intimacy and that feeling of having to trust somebody else. And anxious, preoccupied individuals want nothing more than that <laughs> attention and that safety. And so what you have is this push and pull where the anxious, preoccupied pursues the dismissive avoidant really heavily and just wants to either save or be saved by mm -hmm. this partner. And all that intimacy kind of stresses out the avoidant partner. And so the right. avo avoidant partner withdraws and doesn't respond to calls or closes off and doesn't show affection. And so the anxious, preoccupied partner gets more anxious because they feel like they're pushing their partner away. Right. And so they push more and the avoidant partner backs off more. And so eventually the avoidant I mean, the anxious partner acts out mm -hmm. and goes silent. 
and then the, the, the avoidant partner says, okay, now that they've backed off, I want that connection again. And as soon as you give the anxious partner a little bit, they take that as the sign that things are better. Right. And there's this push and pull back and forth. And it leads to really, it's very interesting. It leads to these really long relationships. Like consistently, they are long-term, multiple-year relationships that are very unhappy, Mm -hmm. that aren't sustainable, and nobody's really getting what they need. And it's hard to break out of that cycle, if you can imagine, because for that to happen, either the anxious partner has to say, this is enough, you know, my needs aren't being met, and I mean it, and they need to be able to resist the avoidant partner pulling them back in when they back off. And on the flip side, the dismissive partner has to say okay this is the time to break it off even when the anxious partner is backed off they want each other when they're not there Mm -hmm. and they're pushed apart when they are interesting it's a very interesting and unfortunate matchup and like i said it's it's interesting to see how they play into each other's anxieties so well Mm -hmm. that the people who are kind of worst set up for each other are so often drawn together right? and often stuck together Mm -hmm. Um, I think understanding attachment theory is a very important step in recognizing some of these tendencies and um, if you find yourself uh, reading about it and say oh you know, I do feel attracted to partners who can save me or who I can save. If that's a thing that you feel, maybe you have anxious attachment. And maybe you're mistaking turbulence for passion. And that's something to be aware of when you look at your relationships or someone that you're thinking about having a relationship with. I think that might be one of the most beneficial points is definitely beyond working on and recognizing how you connect I think the big thing is recognizing others Mm -hmm. because you can go into a date or a friendship and say oh you know this person is kind of avoidant and I know that if we're not open about this discussion then this is going to be a very drawn out and unhappy push and pull. And if we can have an open conversation about this anxious avoidant dance, maybe we can we can be open about our struggles right. together. Yeah. Or or maybe uh you're not at that point in your life and it's best to just say you know, I I'm feeling a lot of attraction towards this person and that's kind of because they're bad for me. Right. And maybe it's time to avoid that connection or at least be conscious of it. Mm -hmm. I think beyond everything else, beyond trying to change or trying to shift towards secure uh, attachment, I think the benefit really comes from being mindful of it Mm -hmm. and just, you know, thinking about it 
because once you understand something at that level, it really gives you the power to control your um, your decisions. Right. Interesting. I think that um, kind of wraps up my findings. Is there any any like questions? I'm sorry, I'm, I, really I don't like think this stuff. It's super interesting. Yeah, I don't think I have any questions. I definitely remember going over this in psychology though, which. That was a long time ago, so no wonder I couldn't remember. But yeah, I remember we watched like a video of the study from the 70s where they, you know, would put the kid in a room and then have like random people walk in, have the parents walk back in. Um, and the reactions were always, you know, like you think babies are happy to see everybody. <laughs> um, right. Especially, I think now there's such a, you know, you see a cute baby at the store or whatever and you're like waving to it and whatever but um yeah i think it is really interesting that that correlates to how people live their lives now like as adults or even um yeah like as teenagers as you get into partnerships things like that it almost reminds me of like the love languages <laughs> yeah yes they're very connected yeah so like i was thinking because you said like oh it's good to be conscious about you know what other people like what your partner might be interested in versus you so like i don't know like if you're if you really like acts of service but your partner really likes quality time you know those correlate pretty easily you have to be conscious because if somebody likes you know gift giving or receiving gifts but one of you isn't into that then you have to be aware that even though you might like receiving gifts their thing might be quality time so right. you're not going to get anything like physical necessarily as a gift it's just going to be quality time with your partner and i think yeah being conscious of that and understanding this is what i like but i also have to be conscious of my partner's wants and needs that makes a lot of sense I'd be very interested to see if there's connections directly between the different love languages and the attachment styles. I know that there's often, um, it's a, again, between that anxious avoidant dance is anxious partners often score highly in quality time mm -hmm. or um, physical affection. And that's something that avoidant partners <clears throat> score very low in right. because they they're afraid of that intimacy and that being that close and vulnerable with somebody and so that often is a, a sort of point of contention in these anxious avoidant relationships right and it's something to be aware of that if somebody's if you're thinking about dating someone and you start seeing these avoidant kind of qualities or tendencies mm -hmm. and you know that you're you yourself need that sort of you know physical affection or emotional intimacy that you're not going to get it there right and it's sort of a fool's errand trying to because you can't make anyone change right you can shift your attachment through mindfulness and exercising these sort of concepts 
but you can't change anybody else. Right. And I think that's important to remember. Your goal should never be, I'm going to change this person from avoidant to secure. Mm -hmm. That's, you, it can't be done. And it's a selfish thing to do, to yes. attempt to do. You can do so much to work on your own attachment. And I think it's healthy to be supportive. There's some great books um, which encourages the um, discussion, open discussion about... It's one of those things that you should approach as a team and say, if we're both aware of this, of our tendencies, and it's something that we both agree that we want to individually work on but support each other... Right. You know, there's benefit to be had there, but really it is, it's a personal development, it's a personal growth, it's not, you know, you can't do it for anybody else, it's gotta, you've gotta intrinsically want that change. Right. Because this research was so recent, relatively speaking, I mean the past ten years, yep. um, there's so much content out there, um, and so we're just hoping to give you like a primer to pique your interest and say, oh, I wonder, I wonder where I fall in attachment. I think it's a fascinating topic and I think that a lot of people could benefit from, you know, it doesn't have to be your, your life's goal to change your attachment style. I think there is a lot of value in learning about things that help you learn about yourself. Mm -hmm. Because I think understanding yourself is one of the most valuable parts of mindfulness and, um, you know, overcoming life's obstacles. Yeah, definitely. All right. Um, so we're going to sort of switch into the philosophy of art now. And speaking of attachment styles, I actually wrote something in my notes yesterday that sort of in a weird way relates to attachment styles which i didn't plan <laughs> um but it so i was looking at art um in terms of uh art does what words sometimes can't and um i was looking for specific examples and something that i remembered <laughs> was that as a kid at the doctor's office, my doctor, when I was little, asked me to draw a picture of my family <laughs> because they want to see from a four or five year old's perspective what your relationship is like with other people. And obviously with kids, <laughs> you don't have the vocabulary to be able to express that verbally. Right, and so absolutely. I, it was just like a random, I don't think all kids are asked to do that, but, but it's a pretty common thing as I was doing some research that, you know, if, if you're in therapy as a younger kid or at the doctor's office, they do ask you occasionally <laughs> to draw pictures of what your life is like. Um, and I just thought that was really interesting that it connected to attachment styles a bit because obviously if... If you didn't think that you know you were getting enough attention you might draw a more unhappy picture or 
you know, whatever. further away. Right. Um, yeah, so I thought that was really interesting, <laughs> um, just connecting that to attachment styles a little bit. But um, I found a few quotes that I liked about the philosophy of art. So the first one I have um, is by a philosopher called Richard Wolheim. And he said that the nature of art was one of the most elusive of the traditional problems of human culture, and that the definition of art is open, subjective, and debatable. And I think going into the philosophy of art and why people make art, that that would be interesting to look at because obviously you get into things like political comics or you know that stuff is is far more debatable than modern art where there's no specific representation of anything right. recognizable <laughs> um and I thought it was interesting that it referenced human culture as well and I started doing a little bit of an art history deep dive and I wanted to look at what different sort of eras of art portrayed in terms of not having a way to express verbally what was happening and so I sort of went and looked at all the different periods and I think I'm just going to go through them a little bit and sort of sum up what I found. So the first sort of era of art history was the prehistoric era, which dates back as far as 40,000 BC. <laughs> and basically cave art is what I found. <laughs> um, and so at that time, uh, like anything 64,000 years BC is uh, by Neanderthals. So I kind of didn't involve that. I only involved what would st specifically be recognized as human. <laughs> um, and the art that they found on the cave walls, you know, it, it's all over Europe, Australia. Um, they found some in Indonesia. And that was pre any sort of written language. <laughs> right. So I thought that was probably like the most profound thing is that art was a way for people to express themselves before there was even any sort of way to express anything language-based. <laughs> um, and this sort of crosses into the ancient art era as well, um, which you know, it goes over sort of more like the ancient Egypt, ancient Greece, stuff like that. Um, you know, we all learned about like hieroglyphs in middle school, right? So that was the closest thing they had to like an alphabet of sorts. Um, but it was still art. <laughs> like when all said and done, now, and I think you could also get really niche about it and say that, well, our current letters are just art. They're, Right, that'd be an interesting, an interesting you start, yeah, argument to make. It, yeah. it starts getting really complicated because I was thinking about, like, well, in China, they use symbols. But there's also, there's a term for it that I can't remember off the top of my head. But the symbols mean something, but then there's also 
like the written translation of what those symbols mean. <laughs> oh, interesting. And so it's why. So it's like we a have... word and a pictograph sort of thing. Yeah. So like if you just take the Chinese symbol for love, the pronunciation of that would be well, I need. But like obviously, the symbol doesn't have a way to be pronounced. It's just a symbol. <laughs> Right. But the the spoken part and the written part, where you write out the word, sort of is like the definition of the symbol, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I think I follow. Like, um, is it something similar? It's like an icon, almost. Yes. <laughs> like if you were to draw a heart. Right. Or... Like everybody knows that a heart means like love right but or more specifically if you drew a broken heart right everybody knows what that means right but it's it's not a word but it has a meaning exactly okay so i yeah so i got like really deep into that <laughs> um i think that could be a whole separate topic honestly because obviously like any sort of written language gets into that um but that was sort of my first thought going into like the Egyptian hieroglyphs is that they used symbols which are a type of art to be able to express themselves but then when you get into more of the traditional art styles so paintings mostly um you get into more like the portrayal of life um rather than um trying to think like it's more about how the portrayal of humans live rather than a way to communicate or express themselves right because language has taken that role correct yeah so starting sort of with like the medieval period which for reference is like 500 to 1400 ad um the description that I found said that a lot of the artwork in this time portrays the hardship of the Dark Ages, and a lot of it was like grotesque, brutal imagery, mostly because of the like economic and cultural downfall of that time. So, um, there was. I'd have to imagine events like the plagues certainly had impact on the arts, right? Like the uh... um, and a lot of it was like you know a lot of land got conquered <laughs> during the previous era so um you know a lot of misplaced people a lot of hurting emotionally or physically people um yeah and then you get into things like the plague um the start of christianity um or at least the the practice of christianity um so there was a lot of biblical grotesque imagery during the dark ages because people the the expression of it in words did not express it as well as paintings did or drawings or whatever um the next few eras so after that are the renaissance era um you get into like mannerism and both of those were more on the focus of the art itself and not necessarily the portrayal of feelings or emotions behind it. 
However, um, a lot of it was religious portrayal. So, um, especially in the Renaissance era, you get into um, like portrayals of Jesus and Mary, um, lots of different paintings of like patron saints. Um, so, you know, you, you do have some sort of representation, but a lot of it was more decorative than um, for expression, which I think is, is pretty interesting that there was like a whole period where art was just not the way to express yourself. Right. Um, and then sort of getting into the more modern ones, I say modern, but the, the closest I get is like 1900. Um, <laughs> In the Baroque period, it sort of starts coming back into, um, you know, less about the style of art, but more about, you know, they started implementing light and dark, um, like especially with the portrayal of the sun, or um, there was a, a concept called chiaroscuro, which is like the combo of light and darkness in paintings. Um, lots of rich colors, and I feel like in the Baroque period, a lot of it was really ornate, um, which sort of leads into, like, the Romantic period, which was a very, like, happy time in art, <laughs> um, and I feel like that might be related somehow, which is really interesting to me. Um, to take another art history course on that <laughs> but um, but yeah like leading into romanticism that's sort of where my interest starts is like romanticism expressionism um because in romanticism there was the enjoyment of painting itself like people would go outside and paint in a garden or look at landscapes and go paint that way um and it was focused on like passion and emotion rather than what you see. <laughs> so right. um, it, it does lead a little bit into impressionism. There was a small section of like realism. So that sort of focused on like the journalism of art. And it also led into the um, invention of photography since it was so lifelike. Um, and I think even now, Again, I focus more on painting in this, but um, like photography these days, like currently, is huge. And I think of specifically like like newspaper photographers or like the journalists who like go into protests and take pictures of you know different things in different cities. Um, isn't that usually referred to as embedded journalism where they like yeah. attach a photographer to go into like a conflict zone specifically right. yeah and so you know there are all these photos of people fighting for what they think is right and a lot of those photos are re really powerful and so I think even though we might not you know photography is a whole separate genre of art um the philosophy behind it is that 
you're capturing probably some of the most raw footage of people doing what they believe in. And so I think whether that's super conscious on the people's part <laughs> is another thing. Um, but it can be like therapeutic to even look at those photos and see, oh wow, these people are really doing what they care about. And I think that sort of goes into the idea of creating art yourself, so instead of just viewing it. Um, so I have a whole other section here um, leading into like art therapy. So um, art therapy is sort of like the act of art making or like the creative process behind art and using it to um, like calm down or uh, relax a little bit. Some people use it almost as like a meditation um, and there's several different you know applications of it. Um, one that I've seen off the top of my head is um, a lot of people color like those mandala Yep. Yeah. So um, it's just a relaxing topic because it's a repetitive thing and lots of people like to color. Like that's just, you know, like the process of being able to sit down and not have to think about anything else is very relaxing. And I think it's the same with like music or dancing therapy. Um, the idea behind it is the same. and. It's really popular for people with, um, not only people with trauma and mental health problems, but um, for people with like dementia, Tourette's, um, it is a way to sort of relax the brain enough to, because you're concentrating on something. And I think that goes to show that even just the process of creating, like it, it doesn't even matter what you're creating necessarily but the process of it is really helpful for a lot of people um let's see i know i have a whole another page but it is hidden <laughs> you know it just reminds me i had a um an exercise we had to do in um high school where we drew these big mandala type geometric shapes and like we worked on it for like an hour I mean it was a 90 minute mm -hmm. class and we worked up until like the last 10 minutes of class and then the uh, the teacher had us vote on our favorites and so you know class of like 20 kids we narrowed it down to three that were the um, the best ones mm -hmm. And then we put them through a shredder, <laughs> right? Because I mean, that's the idea of because a, a, a sand mandala, its beauty is in its temperance because it's made out of sand, right? And destroying it is as much of a part of the art as it is creating it. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's I don't know how it connects. Um, you know 
perhaps only tangentially to this discussion, but it's interesting to think that creation isn't the only process that can be therapeutic. Right. You know, um, there's another practice of unsent letters that you write and mm -hmm. then you burn or shred yep. or bury or whatever your means of your preferred means of disposal but i've seen ones where people will like write something on like a piece of glass or like a plate and then and they shatter like it. shatter it. <laughs> um yeah i definitely remember doing that in art class we had a whole unit of um i think it's called zentangle like the black and white yep. yeah and then there's like all these different patterns and you can make up a pattern but there's like a whole book of like certified patterns and it's just super relaxing because you sit there and it's just concentration and repetitive and like who doesn't like to draw random shapes to make them look nice kind of thing like um let's see so yeah i guess i sort of went into like how this might apply to our project um you know, like, like we said, you don't have to have any sort of trauma to submit anything to us, but, um, you know, trauma does cause us as humans to have emotions, opinions, and, and views that are not easily expressed by words. Um, especially if that's something that you are still working through and, um, like we sort of mentioned, like therapy is a really good way to sort of, sort of share what you're going through. And while our project is not therapy, um, it is a platform for people to freely create pretty much whatever they want to and submit it to us in a way that hopefully feels, it's a platform for people to sort of feel cathartic about sharing if that is something that they want to do and that's sort of where I ended my research but <laughs> I think just going off of that that um, making art out of hardship is I mean that's kind of the human condition right we've been doing it for thousands of years and there's it's difficult for those pieces to all be put together, mm -hmm. you know? It feels like a very independent struggle. And I think what we're hoping to do is to get that all into a larger collection in a way that feels empowering. Mm -hmm. That you can see it's not just me fighting this battle. There's other people who are struggling with the same sort of feelings and ideas and they're expressing them in very different ways but in a way that you know maybe you can understand something struck me when you were talking about modern art mm -hmm. not expressing something um, more literally it reminds me of Dadaism I'm such a nerd for Dadaism I didn't know what it was until or like I've heard of it but I didn't really know like the specifics of it until Dadaism is like the punk rock counterculture of 1920 yes <laughs> you have all these 
individuals coming back from the first global conflict. You know, World War One just it shattered so many perceptions that we have about humanity and the sort of nature of man and the nature of a life. Mm -hmm. And you had these people come back who had just been sitting in mud, you know, killing each other with stones and clubs and seeing people, you know, just mutilated. Right. And then they come back and how do you talk about that to somebody who wasn't there? Right. How do you explain poison gas to somebody? How do you return to normal society after mm -hmm. seeing that conflict? And these artists questioned what it means to be art. Mm -hmm. um, oh, what's his name? I absolutely love him. I cannot remember his name for the life of me. Um, basically one of the most famous um, Dada's pieces is called Fountain and it's a urinal that's been kicked on its side and signed and if you google it it's like the first thing that comes up so yeah it's <laughs> Duchamp that's who did it oh right? yeah I think so hold on Click Duchamp's on Fountain is I think it just so clearly exemplifies the collective feeling of what's going on and what does it matter mm -hmm. how could you see world war one and come back and make anything but that right kicking over a urinal and signing fountain <laughs> who's to say that this isn't a fountain <laughs> right who's to say this is an art and i i would make it would be a very argument to make that you know, a lot of people give modern art a hard time for being obscure or, you know, taping a banana to a wall. I would, I would make the argument that what we call modern art is a wave of neo-Dadaism that we haven't fully recognized yet. Oh, for sure. I think if you could find when modern art started, I'm sure you could connect it to... I mean, it feels like it's been a series of unfortunate events. I'm sure you could find the turmoil that fuels... I would be very interested to see what art is going to look like in the next five to ten years. I was just about to say that. With... I can almost guarantee it, it's going to be even more obscure than it is right now. If you thought a banana tape to the wall was bad, <laughs> get ready. <laughs> I think... Yeah, especially like in the wake of of COVID, seeing because I think I think what's what's interesting about COVID is that it's affecting everybody in the whole world, everyone. Um, you know, like some things are based off of like one of or world war one you mentioned right like a lot of the art that was created afterward was created by people who were either like first person involved with world war one or new people who were involved with world war one which 
again, it's a world war, so the whole world is still involved, but it's sort of an an isolated it, event. It's it's pockets, right? Yeah. Because not every sure everybody was touched by it, but some people saw more than others. Right. Like a like a more... five year old has a different view of it than the twenty year old who actually had to go off and fight in it. Um, and so I think what's really interesting about COVID is that regardless of age, everybody was affected by it. You know, you've got kids with the whole school situation. Um, you know, you can't be in a school. You've got kids our age who are having to sort of finish up some of the most important parts of their younger adulthood remotely. their capstone <laughs> podcast remotely. <laughs> um, or like... I think of like it's put life on hold yes. for over a year now right for everybody and that's just not something that happens every day <laughs> so no. so yeah it'll be interesting in in a few years to see what comes out of it so if you would like to follow along with us on our capstone project journey um you can like us on facebook our username is between you and me capstone on Instagram, it's between the letter U underscore and underscore me. Um, on Instagram, we also have links to podcast polls. So, um, you know, we took suggestions from people to do the topics today. So you can vote on those and you can also submit art with links in our bio there. Um, and if you want to join our email newsletter, uh, we've been sending them monthly. <laughs> um, we have that linked as well. And we're also on all major podcast platforms now. So you can find us on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Stitcher. I think Anywhere that's all of them. you find your podcasts. Yes, as well Let as go. YouTube. Yes. So that's that yeah so thank you everyone for listening to the between you and me podcast this podcast is controlled by the users and it's been a real pleasure seeing everybody uh, come out and support us so thank you thanks